This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, the unscripted show that celebrates unsung heroes, myth busts historical lies, and rediscovers the forgotten stories that changed our world. I'm your host, Scott Rank. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode, where we're going to get all into politics and talk about differences in specifically how the United States government is set up and how other parliamentary governments are set up across the world, notably Great Britain, due to historical circumstances. The topic of today's episode comes from listener Joyce Normant, and she asks, Can you illustrate differences with the House of Commons versus the House of Representatives and the House of Congress comparing both the U.S. and the U.K. and MPs versus senators and congressmen? And can you illustrate the differences where members will put state ahead of their party? All right, so there's a lot of government questions in there. What I'm not going to do in this episode is just go into the Encyclopedia Britannica and rattle off differences in how the parliamentary system is and how the U.S. government system is. Instead, I'm going to do as is my way, telescope out, look at some of the historical circumstances that set things up in the U.S. and U.K. and talk about why that came to be. And this is an interesting question because... Something that came to my mind when I was listening to this question was a term that I had seen in movies before, but before I read more about government systems, I didn't understand. That term is a vote of no confidence. I'm from the United States. We do not have votes of no confidence. If you're from a government that has a parliament, then you do know what that means. Sadly, the place where I saw this in a movie that sticks out most of my memory is Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, Arguably the worst of Star Wars movies, and I say that as somebody who sadly was, when in high school, camped out to see Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Anyway, that movie takes Star Wars, but if you love trade negotiations and government bickering, then that movie is for you. But at one point in the movie, Queen Amidala, played by Natalie Portman, says, If this body is not capable of action, I suggest new leadership is needed. I move for a vote of no confidence in Chancellor Valorum's leadership. This gets into all the things in the movie with the Trade Federation invading Naboo. 
Anyway, I heard that term vote of no confidence, and I didn't really know what that meant. If you're from a government that has a parliamentary system, you would know what this means. But if you're not, what it means is it is a vote and it's a statement about whether a person in power, the prime minister, whoever is sort of the head of the government, is no longer deemed fit to hold that position because they're not carrying out their obligations or inadequate in some way, or they're making decisions that others think are detrimental. So it shows the head of state that the elected parliament no longer has confidence in that person, in the appointing government. So sometimes if a vote of no confidence is passed, then an individual member might have to resign along with the entire council of ministers. What this does in a parliament is you can have parties come in and out, or you can have individual leaders go in and out, even if it's not election time. And that's not how the U.S. government works. I also remember when I was taking a political science class in college, it's been noted by many political scientists that the U.S. government is unique in that it does not have a parliamentary system, but it seems to have more safeguards against some sort of populist rule or a strong man coming to power that can completely erode checks and balances, as you might see in the example of Venezuela. That's rare. It seems that parliamentary systems have more inbuilt checks and balances to control that, as such as a vote of no confidence. So what I'm going to do is go way back and look at some of the historical circumstances that led to some of these differences, and I hope this all makes sense, and I hope I don't invoke too many painful memories of Star Wars Episode One. The Phantom Menace, and try to make things at least a little bit more interesting than that. So that's my goal. I'm going to make things more interesting than Star Wars Episode One. Where this comes from, from the, the American side, is that in the 1770s and 1780s, there are some issues that demand the attention of the Continental Congress and later the Confederation Congress, besides the Revolutionary War. One of the biggest questions was providing some type of governance for the larger colonies' western lands. After the French and Indian War in 1763, the boundary of English settlement is basically the peaks of the Appalachian Mountains. King George issued a proclamation exactly on this, and he didn't want his subjects to settle beyond those lands because many of the Indians there had sided with the French during the war. He didn't want colonial settlement antagonizing them and leading to future warfare and a destabilization of his colonies that the French could later exploit, as they did exploit during the Revolutionary War and sided with the Americans. Well, a lot of wealthy colonists didn't like this proclamation, and it's part of what made them join the revolutionary cause. John Hancock in Massachusetts, to Ben Franklin and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry and George Mason in Virginia, many wealthy people owned land claims beyond the Appalachians. But these claims were worthless with the king's decree. So with independence, one of the very first things that the elites did was resuscitate its land titles, or at least its purported land titles. But some of these land titles overlapped. For example, as far as Virginia was concerned, what we now call the Midwest belonged to it. And colonial Virginia included today's Virginia, but also West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, and part of Minnesota. So Virginia was pretty big. It was bigger than Alaska almost. Augusta County, the western county that took in that huge expanse, was the biggest county in the country. When Congress sent the Articles of Confederation to the states for the ratification in 1777, 12 ratified, but Maryland didn't because they said they would never agree to join in a permanent confederation with Virginia 
so long as it has these massive Western land claims. Congress tried to resolve the title disputes and the boundary issues, but Virginia congressmen like George Mason and James Madison and James Monroe responded that there was nothing in the Articles of Confederation giving Congress authority to say anything about anyone's land titles in Virginia or about the extent of Virginia's Western claims. So they said that they wouldn't even discuss the matter in Congress. So the history of the Revolution shows that the revolutionaries understood their states to be sovereign, their nations to be states, and if America as a whole had been a nation and the Confederation Congress had been a national legislature, such questions should have been resolved by a majority vote. But the principle at the time was that sovereignty lay in the states. Now, I'm not going to get into all the issues of the Articles of Confederation and how they didn't really work at the time in the Constitution, but even before the Articles went into effect in 1781, many people in politics and the military wanted further strengthening of the federal center. These people took the name Federalists, and their efforts resulted in the adoption of the Federal Constitution of 1788. So why did the Federalists want to strengthen the Federation? Mostly because they thought the Revolutionary War had exposed the shortcomings of the Continental and Confederation Congress. The Continental Army and the various state military units seemed always short of men, money, and supplies. The Federalists leapt to the conclusion that if the 13 newborn states had a difficult time in obtaining credit from European monarchies and bankers to fight a war against Britain, the greatest power in the world, then it had to be because of the Articles of Confederation and they were inadequate. So the Federalists had a number of complaints about the state and federal government of the revolutionary decade. Federalists said that only a strong government could solve the problem of a government that had barely just enough money and coercive power to do what it was intended to do, to fight wars and win, and it didn't have the resources to do much of anything else. Federalists in the Continental and Confederation Congress worked to get states to give more power to Congress. At first, they were unsuccessful. Americans from New Hampshire to Georgia refused. They didn't want to trade one distant, unaccountable authority in the British Parliament for what they thought was another one in the American Congress. Rhode Island refused to ratify a tariff agreement when all 12 other states did. Virginia responded by repealing its ratification, and for Federalists, this was the last straw. An example of how confusing this was at the time is that when King George III admitted defeat, he admitted the defeat to the sovereign and independent states of the United States individually. Article 1 of the Treaty of Paris put it, His Britannic Majesty acknowledges the said United States, New Hampshire, Massachusetts Bay, Rhode Island, and Providence Plantations, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia to be free, sovereign, and independent states, that he treats with them as such, and for himself, his heirs and successors, relinquishes all claims of the government, propriety, and territorial rights of the same, and every part thereof. So King George names the 13 states as independent, and you could imagine how cumbersome it'd be today with treaties to have to name all 50 states of the United States. So in order to reform the Confederation, in 1785, the states of Maryland and Virginia appointed delegates to a conference to meet at George Washington's home, Mount Vernon, on the Potomac River. The task was to negotiate an arrangement for sharing the river, establishing each state's navigation and taxing rights. The conference failed because Virginia's delegates didn't show, but a new meeting was set for the following year at Annapolis. This time, the goal was a reform of the Confederation. Only five states sent delegates to the Annapolis Convention of 1786. 
So leading figures like Alexander Hamilton of New York and James Madison of Virginia called for a new convention to take place the following summer in Philadelphia. The Federalists told the state governments that the purpose of the new convention was to propose amendments to the Articles of Confederation. Rhode Island didn't send a delegation because they didn't want to strengthen the Confederation. New York, where Governor George Clinton and a majority of the legislature were skeptical of the Federalists, set a moderately pro-reform three-man delegation. Nationalist Alexander Hamilton received an appointment, but his friend and political ally John Jay missed out. In Virginia, which agreed to send a delegation to help propose amendments, Richard Henry Lee, or Light Horse Harry Lee as he was known in the Revolution, and Patrick Henry, both of whom were long the dominant voices in the powerful General Assembly, stayed home. Lee confided that he didn't think the convention would do the work that he approved, and Henry said that he, quote, smelled a rat. Part of the reason is due to a history where Congress had been receptive in 1785 and 1786 when John Jay assured it that he could negotiate an agreement with Spain that would grant the state's valuable trade concessions in the Caribbean. All he needed to offer in return, he said, was an American commitment to forego use of the Mississippi River, which then belonged to Spain, and they would forego this for 25 years. Under the Articles of Confederation, nine states needed to agree to any treaty, but Congress authorized Jay to negotiate the agreement anyway, despite the objections of the five southern states. According to James Madison, this move by Congress converted Patrick Henry from the champion of the federal cause to a lukewarm advocate at best. If Mississippi navigation rights were actually surrendered, Madison said, Henry would become an outright opponent. The year 1787 also saw the Confederation Congress adopt its most significant legislative initiative, the Northwest Ordinance. In that law, Congress provided that states could be carved out of Virginia's former Trans-Ohio River Territory, which we, what we now call the Midwest. Among other things, it said in Section 13 that once they had been organized, the new states would be admitted to the Union on an equal footing with the original states. The federal principle, the principle of state equality, would guide the incorporation into the United States. So one vision of national government, the Virginia plan, this sort of explains the differences between the American versus British loyalty to the state versus loyalty to party. James Madison had spent several months researching the history of confederations before the Philadelphia Convention. He found a lot in history to encourage his desire for a stronger federation. He decided to push for the abandonment of America's federal experiment, in fact. Madison was a veteran of many legislative battles in Virginia and in Congress, and encouraged his fellow Virginia delegates, including Governor Edmund Randolph, George Washington, and George Mason among them, to arrive in Philadelphia several days early. If the Old Dominion presented its plan at the beginning of the convention, he thought, the blueprint would guide the convention's deliberations. So when the Philadelphia Convention opened, its first acts were to install George Washington as president of the convention, to vote to close the door so the public wouldn't know what was being discussed, and take up the constitutional proposals on which the Virginians had agreed. These provisions were called the Virginia Plan, and this was the outline of a national government. It would have substituted a central government with all the political... <laughs> it would have substituted a central government with all the power national officials could want for the federal government of the Confederation. This was a type of government to which the people were known to be adverse, which could explain why the Philadelphia Convention operated in secret and why its minutes, like James Madison's famous notes, were kept secret for decades after the event. But there were delegates of the convention who kept notes of what was said to the point of their departure. 
Most notable were the notes of New York delegate Robert Yates. He was one-time chief justice of the Empire State. He tells us that Virginia's governor, Edmund Randolph, explained the Virginia proposal's rationale with three resolutions. First, resolved, that a union of the state merely federal will not accomplish the objects proposed by the Articles of the Confederation, namely common defense, security of liberty, and general welfare. Two, resolved, that no treaty or treaties among any of the states as sovereign will accomplish or secure their common defense, liberty, or welfare. And three, resolved, that a national government ought to be established consisting of a supreme judicial, legislative, and executive. As Yates explained, another delegate objected at that point that the goal of the convention was to propose amendments to the Confederation, not to create a national government. If it adopted the first two resolutions, then the convention would be in an end. When asked what the third resolution meant by the word supreme, the answer was that the states should yield when they conflicted with the federal government. Six states voted for that resolution, which was thus temporarily adopted. Over the following days, the convention adopted resolutions about a national legislature and a national executive. The limits of the convention's nationalism in its early days was reached when James Wilson of Pennsylvania proposed multi-state districts for the Senate and the convention rejected his proposal. So at this point, there were three parties in the convention. The first was a monarchist party. The chief of these was New York's Alexander Hamilton. The monarchists were at at severely restricting power of the states and substituting one unitary government for the entire continent. In the convention, Hamilton made a famous speech in which he avowed... (laughs) Hamilton made a famous speech in which he avowed his admiration for the British Constitution and said that while the American people were not prepared to assimilate their government to the British model so closely as he could wish, he owed it to himself to speak freely. He called for a president with a life term, senators with life terms, an appointment of governors by the president, and this is in the manner of Great Britain. So Hamilton here displays his directness, his candor, and his intellectual ability. Many delegates, as were told by accounts of the convention, thought very highly of Hamilton's learned disquisition, but none of them were quite so frank in their views. The second party here consisted of nationalists, people who, without ever avowing admiration for the monarchy, wanted to push centralization as far as reasonably possible. These people hoped to establish a centralized government dominated by their own states. Most prominent among these was Virginia's James Madison, who is long a compatriot and simpatico of Hamilton's Federalist cause. And the Virginia plan was chiefly his. And it makes sense that Virginians would support this plan because Virginia was the biggest state and it would give them the lion's share of power in the new nation. In the wake of the convention, Madison would be greatly dismayed by the discrepancy between what he wanted and what the convention had yielded. He acted in positions of high public trust over the next four decades to bring the federal regime into accordance with his proposals even to the extent of arguing that the Constitution meant what the convention had squarely decided that it should not mean. The last group there was a cohort of the convention of members insistent on proposing a reinforcement of the central government while maintaining the primary place of the states in the American government. This was a federal rather than a national government. And they'd have their way in the short run. But some have argued that constitutional law chipped away at the victory. Early in the convention, the committee of the whole house very narrowly agreed to create a national government with a national executive, a national legislature, and a national judicial branch. It didn't have any of these at the time. It also agreed that the national legislature should be empowered to legislate in all cases to which the separate states might be incompetent 
in all areas in which the harmony of the states might be interrupted by separate state legislation. And it also decided that the national legislature should have a veto over state laws it considered contrary to the Articles of Union. So at this early stage, the committee decided that the national judiciary should also have power to decide all cases affecting, quote, the national peace and harmony. We know this because we can extract it from the records of two of the delegates, Maryland's Luther Martin, who first provided the three-party classification of the delegates given above, and New York's Robert Yates. We also have the Journal of the Convention. Hey everyone, Scott here. We're going to take a very short break for a word from our sponsors. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So as the Philadelphia Convention early on decided to create a national government with an overwhelmingly powerful national legislature and a very strong national judiciary, and as by the end of the convention, it produced a federal constitution without either of those features, we can conclude that the change was no accident. The Constitution, as finally referred to Congress by the convention, featured a federal legislative body, or Congress, without either of the sweeping legislative authority or the veto over state laws earlier proposed by the advocates of a national government. This decision was a carefully considered one because Delegate James Madison of Virginia repeatedly implored other delegates to restore the congressional veto of state laws, but he saw his arguments repeatedly rejected. So the convention didn't eliminate states off the map. It made their continued existence essential to the selection of members of Congress. First, members of the House of Representatives would be elected by voters eligible to vote for members of the relevant state legislatures. If you weren't a state, you didn't get representatives. That's what it meant. As for senators, they wouldn't be selected by the president as Hamilton wanted following the model of the British House of Lords, and he would have preferred this way. And they wouldn't be selected by the lower house of Congress, as Madison and the Virginia Nationalists proposed. Instead, they were to be chosen by state legislatures. And this is how it worked for a very long time. Madison was unhappy that the new Congress, like the old ones, would be federal instead of national. He confided to Thomas Jefferson on October 24, 1787, that he feared the ongoing state role in federal policymaking meant that the new government would be too responsive to the people's whims. It would give citizens too much access to direct democracy. This new government would be inadequate to national aims, just as the old one had been. Madison had also broached the idea that Congress should be empowered to use the U.S. Navy on states that didn't comply with national commands. The convention rejected that idea, too. And keep in mind, this is right around the time of the Revolutionary War, 
when it was barely possible for uh, the colonies to muster their resources and coordinate in such a way to win a war on their own soil. How would the U.S. government be able to raise a navy? How would they be able to compete with other great powers that were more centrally located and to pool their resources and their money and work on national projects like canals and uh, do shipbuilding and all sorts of other things? So these are the debates going on. There were other provisions that displeased the Nationalist Monarchist Coalition as well. Instead of saying Congress may legislate as it will or Congress may legislate in any area to which it considers the states incompetent, the final Constitution carefully hedged congressional power. In Article 1, Section 8, the draft Constitution included a list of congressional powers. Almost all of them were related to foreign affairs and trade, and they provided little wiggle room for expansion. In the course of the ratification dispute of 1787 to 1788, Federalists from North to South promised to take a tightly constricted view of constitutional interpretation. The Judiciary Article of the Constitution also lived up to the hopes of the delegates favoring a federal over a national structure. Instead of giving federal courts power to hear any case Congress wanted them to hear, as the Hamilton-Madison wing had proposed, the convention restricted federal courts' jurisdiction in two ways. First, the Constitution didn't require that there be any federal trial courts at all. In fact, Madison would promise in the ratification debate in Virginia that the new government would try to get along without them. Only if that experiment failed, he said, would federal courts be created. The Constitution also provided a list of the kinds of cases Congress might authorize federal courts to decide, which meant as lawyers understood things in those days, the Congress could not authorize federal courts to decide any other kinds of cases. Instead of a national judiciary, in other words, one with the power to hear any case that came to hand, Article 3 created a federal judiciary and left most judicial power in the state government. All right, so that lays the groundwork of differences in the American and British approaches to government, where the British government essentially all funnels upward to the parliament, where the American governmental system, at least at its inception, was much more decentralized, and it went up to states. So that's the groundwork. It doesn't really answer the question directly, but let's move more into the modern period on differences between the British House of Commons and the U.S. House of Representatives. Now, a lot of this information I got from a 2005 report from R. Eric Peterson from the Congressional Research Service in the Library of Congress. So the U.S. House of Representatives did develop its initial parliamentary practices on the model of the British House of Commons. The House of Commons and the House of Representatives have evolved along very divergent lines. And the main reason is that the purposes of the chambers are different. The House of Commons serves as the forum for the formation and maintenance of the government, which is comprised of ministers and deputies drawn from the majority block or block in the House of Commons. In contrast, the House of Representatives in the U.S. exists as a legislative and oversight forum whose policy preferences may or may not coincide with those of the separately elected government. That means the presidency and the rest of the executive branch. In fact, the founders expected that there would be conflict between the two, and they thought that that would actually be good because then large-scale change couldn't happen unless much of society was on the exact same page and only a small faction couldn't introduce drastic change. So in the House of Commons, the government's legislative agenda is the agenda of the House of Commons. 
and few major policy initiatives not formally sanctioned by the government are considered by the House of Commons. In the U.S. House, though, significant work of the session is the maintenance of government programs, but individual members and individual leaders can influence the House's agenda to a degree that is unheard of in the House of Commons. There's also differences in elections, and this gets to the vote of no confidence issue. Due to the terms of office and timing of elections under the Parliament Act, the duration of a parliament may not exceed five years from the date of which the current parliament first convened. General elections have typically been held during the fourth year of a parliament. The timing of elections is usually determined by the government, which announces the date on which a federal election will be held, usually within 30 days of the announcement. The government also has to formally request the Crown to dissolve parliament. On April 5, 2005, the government announced May 5th as the date for the general election. The Queen formally dissolved parliament on April 11th. In the United States, the congressional elections occur on the Tuesday after the first Monday in November of each even-numbered year. November 2010, November 2012, 2014, yada yada. The dates of party primary elections to choose party candidates for the House of Representatives are set by state law and generally occur in the first six months of the election year. So that's to say elections go on a lot longer in America than they do in Great Britain. American National Party organizations often provide primary campaign assistance for favored candidates. But for the House of Commons, constituency committees composed of local party activists seek candidates, often far in advance of a general election. National party organizations sometimes seek to influence the selection of the constituency committee, but will generally bow to local preferences, except when a candidate is thought unlikely to support party policies. In terms of the sizes of these houses of representation, the size of the House of Representatives has been fixed at 435 since 1910. Four non-voting delegates represent U.S. possession and the District of Columbia. There are four non-voting delegates that represent U.S. insular possessions in the District of Columbia. A resident commissioner is elected for a four-year term from Puerto Rico. These positions don't have an analog in the House of Commons. The number of constituencies and the boundaries of individual constituencies may be changed on rare occasions. For example, in 1990, the constituency of Milton Keynes, about 30 miles northwest of London, was divided into two seats because of rapid population growth there. With the population of Great Britain around 60 million, the average MP represents a constituency of roughly 91,000 people. So in the allocation of seats, an English constituency has more people, closely followed by districts in Scotland. Constituencies in Wales and Northern Ireland are comprised of fewer people. The average U.S. House district has about 670,000 people. Under the Constitution, a representative must be a resident of the state in which the district he or she represents is located. In the House of Commons, an MP only has to be a British subject, but it's becoming increasingly rare for MPs to have no residency connection with their constituencies. British MPs have to be at least 21 years of age, while U.S. representatives have to be 25 and U.S. senators 30. Naturalized British subjects are eligible to seek election to the House of Commons immediately while naturalized, but U.S. citizens are eligible to serve in the House of Representatives only after seven years of citizenship and nine years in the Senate. Now, one other thing I want to mention here on differences between the House of Representatives and the House of Commons is the role of the British Speaker. 
the British Speaker has a long tradition as an impartial presiding officer. To maintain his impartiality, a member of Parliament, when he or she is selected as Speaker, ceases active membership to his political party and acts in private meetings with MPs in a manner which will not give the impression of party favoritism. If the Speaker stands at the next general election for re-election to the House of Commons, traditionally the opposition parties do not field candidates to contest his re-election. The Speaker is provided with his own personal residence in the Palace of Westminster and receives the same salary as a cabinet minister. When the Speaker resigns or retires, the Crown traditionally elevates the former Speaker to the House of Lords. Traditionally, one is called to the chair, as it said, by one's colleagues in the House of Commons. Speakers have had very different backgrounds of prior service, but in the post-World War II era, most have been backbench members or junior members of the Whip's office and not cabinet members. The Speaker and deputies, as well as the chairs of standing committees, have incredible powers. They can determine which portions, if any, of a bill may be amended and have discretion in limiting debate time. Unlike the U.S. House of Representatives, which tends to operate under the five-minute rule, limiting the time of speeches in committee and in committee of the whole, there are no formal time limits. In the House of Commons, the Speaker may, on rare occasions, interrupt a more formal vote and require a vote in which members stand in their places and are counted by the chair. A standing vote can be used instead of the House of Commons' more formal division when a small minority has persisted in demanding divisions. However, a division vote in the House of Commons can occur when demanded by a major party. And it's not unusual for House of Commons members to be sanctioned for speaking too long, and it's customary for a member to see the floor after losing the attention of the Commons. All right, so one last thing I'm going to look at in this episode is specifically look at votes of no confidence. And this inf- <laughs> and in the resources for this episode, I'm going to include a link to an article from HistoryExtra.com. There's an article written by Emma Mason that lays this out pretty well. And this is based on research from University of Exeter professor Richard Toy. So what does a vote of no confidence mean? When was a vote of no confidence first used? What does it say about different government systems? And which prime ministers in history have fallen victim to it? A parliamentary no-confidence vote is a motion moved in the House of Commons with the wording that this House has no confidence in government. It signifies that the government has lost the support of the Commons, the legislature, without which it is impossible to operate effectively. Retaining the confidence of the Commons is a core principle of the UK Constitution. The rules are outlined in the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act. It says, If a motion stating that this House has no confidence in HM government, His Majesty's or Her Majesty's government, is lost by the government and a new government with the support of a majority of MPs cannot be formed within 14 days, Parliament is dissolved, and an early general election is triggered. So this means that the basic principle is, the government of a country has to have the confidence of the House of Commons. If the government has lost its majority or does not have a reliable majority, this is the cue for either the government to fall and be replaced, or for a general election to be called. So the government then has a fixed period of time, 14 days, to win a vote of confidence or to call a general election. This is a period of political maneuvering in which the government party tries to prove that it can carry on and the opposition tries to supplant it. These votes were a fairly regular occurrence in the 19th century. But they haven't come around very often from 1900 to the president. 
Sir Robert Walpole agreed to resign in 1742 after losing a vote in the Commons that was effectively considered a motion of no confidence. And there's a distinction to be made between a formal vote of no confidence and a situation in which the government is looking to pass a key proposal or a piece of legislation, and to lose would suggest that they have lost the confidence of the House of Commons. And we're seeing all this right now in England with discussion of Brexit and how to implement that. In 1782, a motion censoring the government of Lord North for its conduct during the war with America was the first time a government was brought down by a vote of no confidence. Since then, there have been 20 government defeats on a vote of no confidence, all leading to either dissolution or resignation. Other notable incidents in modern history include the vote of no confidence in the conservative government of Stanley Baldwin in 1924, following the loss of his majority in the general election of December 1923. The election left the conservative government outnumbered in the Commons by Labour and the Liberals, and when Parliament met, it was defeated on the King's speech, that is, the government's program of policies. Baldwin resigned, and he was replaced with the Labour Prime Minister, Ramsay MacDonald, who in turn lost a confidence vote that fall, and a further election followed. In 1940, the Norway debate occurred. This was a debate held on the 7th and 8th of May between MPs on Britain's failed campaign against German invasion forces in Norway. This turned into a vote of confidence on Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain. On that occasion, the motion was simply the proposal that this House do now adjourn on which Labour called a division or vote. Chamberlain won, but he had a reduced majority, and with his credibility badly damaged, he resigned as Prime Minister two days later. He was replaced by Winston Churchill. Churchill invited the leaders of the Labour and Liberal parties to form a coalition government, with Chamberlain serving in Churchill's cabinet as Lord President of the Council. The last time a vote of no confidence was held was in 1979, which led to a general election. The Labour government, led by James Callaghan, faced a vote of no confidence on March 28, 1979, following a defeat over a referendum regarding Scotland and lost by just one vote. Following the vote, which was brought by opposition leader Margaret Thatcher, Callaghan was forced to call a general election, which was won by Thatcher's party. So opposition parties throughout history have put down votes of no confidence, but generally they tend not to succeed because members of the governing party see that the government's life is in danger, and so they circle the wagon, so to speak. They support each other. Hey everyone, Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Votes of no confidence were put down on two occasions in 1942 when 
the war was going pretty badly for Britain. Churchill managed to survive the votes. There was also a case that was unrelated to the conduct of the war. In 1944, the government opposed an amendment to its education bill, which would have introduced equal pay for female teachers. The government lost narrowly, and Churchill was furious. He went back to the House of Commons and said he wanted the matter to be treated as a vote of confidence and succeeded in getting the amendment reversed. He essentially browbeat the House of Commons into giving him his way. Another incident involves Margaret Thatcher, who faced down Labour's vote of no confidence in her government in 1990, even though she had resigned as Prime Minister earlier that day. On November 22nd, Thatcher announced her decision to stand down as Prime Minister after her cabinet refused to back her in a second round of leadership elections. But later that day, Labour's motion of no confidence was defeated. Nevertheless, John Major succeeded as Tory leader five days after Thatcher's resignation. Now, votes of no confidence were used before the 19th century, and I include Robert Walpole in 1742 and William Pitt the Younger in 1784, who avoided resignation by asking for a dissolution of Parliament, and the ensuing election bolstered his government with a safe majority in the Commons, and the Duke of Wellington in 1830, who resigned the day after the vote. So in previous centuries, MPs were less blindly loyal to their party. In the 19th century, there weren't really career politicians in the sense that we have today. MPs who weren't paid weren't under the same pressure to remain loyal in order to keep their jobs, and party discipline was less rigid. So 19th century governments were less stable than modern governments. You might have more free thinkers. The argument could be made that today people are more beholden to their party and less likely to act out. But the functioning and machinery of government goes more smoothly now than it does in the past. So now, from the 20th century onward, governments have generally been unlikely to lose a vote of no confidence unless they are in a minority government. The three successful votes of no confidence, two in 1924 and one in 1979, were against minority governments. When Theresa May was in danger of a vote of no confidence in December 2018, it's because of her reliance on Northern Ireland's DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party. Had she not called a general election in 2017, from which she emerged with a minority government, she wouldn't have been so vulnerable. So getting back to the original question that Joyce had about votes of no confidence, it comes with advantages and disadvantages. And these advantages and disadvantages came with the motion to try to get rid of Theresa May in 2018. What it can do is get rid of a government that many think is not acting effectively, but it can increase turmoil because then you have to have a whole new election. And there's arguments over whether or not that increased turmoil is worth the ability to remove a government. And at least with the United States, when it was founded, the idea may have been that that increased turmoil could have very well destabilized the entire United States. So that's how we can look on whether or not you have a vote of no confidence and what it means with a government. All right. Well, thank you very much for the question. If any of you would like to submit questions to me, you're very welcome to do so. And I'll do my best to answer whatever you throw at me. All right, that is today's episode. As always, I want to thank the Knowlton's Rangers, especially our spy masters, Bill Ivey, Joyce Norman, Tyler from Colorado, Josh Reddick, Baron Fraser, Chris from Maine, Carl from Norway, Moondoggy from Ohio, Rick Knowlton, Vic and Irene, Mike from New York, Michelle, and Marlene. I'll explain what that is in a second. If you like the show and want to help it grow, there are four easy ways for you to do it. 
One, like and subscribe to the show on the podcast player of your choice. This helps spread the word about the show. Two, join our Facebook group. Here we can keep the discussion going about new episodes and you can talk about what you like and didn't like. And you can find this group if you just search for History Unplugged on Facebook. Three, we have an online store with t-shirts, phone covers, and other accessories featuring awesomely bad history puns that were crowdsourced by you, the audience. And you can find that if you go to tpublic, T-E-E, public.com and look for History Unplugged, or you just go to historyonthenet.com and look for our store there. Four, and this is really the best way to dive deep with History Unplugged, and that's to become one of the Knowlton's Rangers. If you know your American history, you know the Knowlton's Rangers were an elite spy and reconnaissance group in the American Revolutionary War, but it's also the name of the membership program of History Unplugged. You can join at three levels. If you join at the level of Scout, you can hear all the episodes of History Unplugged completely ad-free and get early access to new episodes, at least a week early. If you join at the Intelligence Officer level, you get special bonus episodes, like a 10-part series on the World War II hero Audie Murphy, a multi-part series called Ottoman Lives about different people in the Ottoman Empire, and a series called Rendezvous with Death that looks at biographical profiles of Americans who went to fight in World War I before America entered the war. The last level is Spy Master, where you get all that stuff, but you also get three hardcover history books, Forging a President, How the Wild West Created Teddy Roosevelt, Race to the Top of the World, Richard Byrd and the First Flight to the North Pole, and The Last Fighter Pilot, the true story of the final combat mission of World War II. Another bonus is you can choose a history topic for me to focus on for an entire episode that can go up to an hour, and I'll answer whatever question you have for me, and you get a shout-out at the end of each episode. If you want to learn how to become a member of the Knowlton's Rangers, go to patreon.com slash unplugged. That's patreon.com slash unplugged. All right, well, that is all for my spiel. Thanks for listening to the History Unplugged podcast from ancient Greece to the Cold War and everything else in between. See you next time. This episode is brought to you by Calitrin. Text the word UNPLUG to 30605 and they'll send you a link to a wonderful product that can help you finally succeed in shedding that extra weight. I took Calitrin for several weeks last year and I felt great in several ways. I felt stronger, my workouts felt easier, I slept better, I was noticeably trimmer, there was no downside. Text the word UNPLUG to 30605 right now to see this week's special offer on Calitrin. Calitrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Calitrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an 86% success rate with their 90-day supply, and this week, take advantage of my special offer. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is easy. Just text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605 and I'll send you a link to the special offer. Again, text UNPLUGGED to 30605.